morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman from B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome to this week's show. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streamed at kpca.fm online. Oh, what a day yesterday was with all of the uh, issues around the children's incarcerations having been taken away from their parents. And I was writing an article for my community and thinking I was pleased, obviously, with the uh, change that was announced. But on the other hand, I wondered what mentality people have to even think that that was okay to begin with. That's a big question, and I'm not going to be able to answer it today, but it's on my mind. I thought I'd mention it to you. It's something for us to think about as voters in this country, about how we ultimately treat our vulnerable populations, and especially our young people. And we're privileged today, speaking of young people, to have as our guest Amanda Gray, who is the incoming principal of Grant Elementary School here in Petaluma. I thought that it would be great during the summer break here to keep our mind on education and the children in our community and have the opportunity to meet a new educator coming into our community and going to head up one of our schools. So welcome to our studio today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. And uh, part of my agenda, as I think I mentioned to you, is uh, for our community to learn that there are heroes in our world who affect our daily lives, who are not sports people and entertainers, but who have the serious work of uh, helping make our world a better place. And you are in a prime position of affecting generations of human beings uh, in this world. So first of all, I want to thank you for the profession you have chosen in your life to pursue. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you got to this. Yes, absolutely. I I also feel that way about being an educator. I feel like it's one of the greatest impacts you can have in our world, and it's an honor to be one. I came um, to becoming an educator when I met my fourth grade teacher. So I was nine years old, and I was in a classroom, and I was learning a second language, and I realized that there could be the type of leadership and love and inclusion in a classroom um, that could change children's lives. And I was that child at the time, and I realized that the opportunity to do something like that for children would be an extraordinary life to live. So I sort of knew from that moment on forward that I wanted to be a teacher, and um, it came forth again when I was 15 years old, the opportunity to work with young people at the Marin Jewish Community Center at the summer camp, and I realized I had a real knack for it. And um, throughout the following years, I became a count. I went from being a counselor to a supervisor, and then the camp director. And then I realized being able to provide leadership for those who also work with children was something that really resonated with me and brought me deep fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. And that's when I really decided. Okay, I think that. Teaching is exactly what I want to do, and inevitably becoming a principal. Mm-hmm. And so I set forth to do that. So where did you go to 
school? And yeah, like yeah. So um, I grew up in San Rafael in Marin County, and I went to San Rafael High School, and then uh, went to the University of Oregon for a year, and missed California a whole lot, and decided for sure I wanted to teach in California specifically. So I transferred to Dominican University, and got my finished my bachelor's, got my teaching credential, and then a couple of years into teaching, went to SF State to get my administrative credential and master's, and here I am. Wow, so it's a, it's a new beginning for you. And this will be your first principal's position? This is my, yes, that's correct. So what's that like? Oh, it's really exciting. Um, you know, the role of camp director did give me some insight into, you know, managing a staff of 30, hiring, training them, developing a vision. But the opportunity to do that in the public school system feels um, much more, uh, it's very exciting. Um uh, how do I feel about it? I guess, you know, I just feel really honored that uh, to be seen as someone who can contribute what I want to the grant community. And I just feel really grateful. Well, that, that position is, uh, well, you've got the teachers on one side, mm-hmm. and the, not necessarily oppositions, but just you've got the teachers, you've got the parents, you've got the school board, you've got the school district uh, staff, and you're kind of in the middle of all that and having to negotiate all of these various levels of relationships. It's true. And relationships, for me, that's the key part. Um, and I and I feel that that's really what I'm going to bring bring to um, the community. I, I do believe that um, a school district and the community at large is based off of the relationships that make, that are a part, you know, that exist within it. And building those relationships with the different stakeholders, you know, building trust and integrity and um, inclusion, equity, honor, and having that all focused on a student-centered vision where we're doing what's best for kids. I think that's how you bring all of those different parts of that community together. So in our in our discussion, you had said something about uh, everybody having a sense of equity. Mm-hmm. Could you explain what you meant by that in all these relationships? Yeah. Because the school is a complex environment. Right. So tell me about that. When I think about equity, I think about um, each person and each child and each teacher getting what they need to be successful. And it's not always the same. So, you know, equal doesn't necessarily mean equitable. So when I think about children and the diversity in their needs and their learning styles and um, and in the same way as I think of educators, that each person needs something a little bit different to be successful and to take the time to discover that and provide that is an important process for a successful and cohesive school. So that's the student part of it, right? That mm-hmm. in, in terms of the children's growth and development through mm-hmm. in-classroom activities, learning, etc., and how do the parents fit into the equity equation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, as a as an educator, different you know different parents, you know, approach you. It's usually with a concern of their child, but not necessarily. You know, um, I think what's important is the overall the overall commitment to individualizing the the, the service to the community to fit to fit the need of each person 
And I don't really know what it would look like in regards to parents. I'd have to receive the request or receive the communication and then be able to provide to provide what they need to the best of the school's ability, to the best of my ability. Um, yeah. At the particular school you're coming to, the parents are, are very engaged mm-hmm. in the school, it seems to be. Uh, and I'm wondering, um, what is it, what's the result of parent engagement on the children? Does it make a difference for the children? And are there, is that difference measured, been measured in any way? And if you can't quote statistics and studies, that's fine too. But your, from your learning and your experience in the classroom, what's, the, what's that been like for you? I think having an engaged parent community is a huge, huge positive, a huge positive impact on a student population and a teacher population and an entire school and an entire district. I think when we're working on the growth and development of young people, you need an aligned an aligned vision and support system from all angles. So at home, at school, and then when you can combine the two together to form um, any like an engaged population, it the possibilities are endless. So I think the important part of that is making sure that the parents and the students and the teachers and the classified staff, everybody involved at the school is on board with the same mission and the same commitment. And then I think the possibilities are endless in terms of growth and learning and love and support at a school. So you, you're coming, of course, from teaching right now into this, uh, this new position. So you also understand very clearly the needs of the teachers in the school. And um, in our country now, there have been a number of uh, uh, issues, demonstrations around teacher pay, around teacher, uh, the atmosphere. People think teachers, oh, they only work for a few hours a day and they're off all summer and uh, etc. Many people perceive it as a part-time job in many ways, but it's really much, much, much more that, than that. And of course, a great responsibility. Can you reflect on, on that piece at all? Yeah, you know, it's pretty heartbreaking to hear, you know, the rhetoric around around that being a part-time job or some kind of child care system, sort of a glorified babysitter. That kind of um, conversation, I think, is so detrimental to where we want to go in the ways of or what we want for our children. So I think when we, we think about our own children, or just even if you don't have your own, the children in the community and how they are—they are inheriting our country and our future, um, and what you what you want for our country and our future. And to think about the individuals that support and teach them every day—if you don't honor and respect those people, then I can't imagine what your expectation is of the children that are coming out of that system. So, so yeah, it's um, it's disappointing. And what I would say to that part-time thing is. It's not that they only work 10 months out of the year. It's they do 12 months of work in 10. You know, it's really, really hard work. And they work throughout the summer. My staff is at trainings. I was just with them at a training. They're redoing their classrooms. They're planning curriculum. They're traveling for trainings. They're going to L.A. They're going to Sacramento. So, anyways, I think you understand how I feel I, I do <laughs> understand how you feel. And mm-hmm. for me, it's frustrating uh, as a citizen and as someone who thinks that Education is one of the primary values that a society can have, educating our children. 
to see that we're willing to pay sports figures and entertainment figures uh, huge sums of money to entertain us, but we struggle to find funding and to find the resources to be able to make sure our teachers are trained and that they're paid well and that they're comfortable in our community because we are entrusting them with the lives of our children and their future development. And so I really uh, appreciate uh, that whole notion. I, I just heard uh, this morning quickly before I came in that the government's going to announce the merging of the education and the labor department. And I don't expect you to comment on that. I don't have more information, but just thinking, is that is that lowering the value of education? That was my first First response to hearing that, I haven't heard the details, but my first response was, education is so, so very important in our world, and if this means that from the federal level we're going to be devaluing it by saying it's all part of this big thing around labor and the teachers and the, and that function of it, as opposed to what are we giving our children, whoa, mm -hmm. we, are, we are taking a tough step there if that's the case, but we'll hold off to yeah. find find out more details uh, about that. Certainly among the issues facing all of our schools these days has been the issue of safety. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to spend a few minutes with you uh, hearing your ideas and what you have to say in general about that, and maybe particularly about the school that you're going to be functioning in, because it also reflects what's happening in other Petaluma schools, too. Yeah. Uh, I feel really fortunate to come in at a time where uh, Grant Elementary School is very focused on um, some action items to help with the physical safety of the school. Uh, I was just at a PTA meeting on Monday night, and the CBO, Chris Thomas, uh, was there with us to talk to us about uh, what the district is going to do to support fence, uh, some, some fencing off some sort of open enclosures of the Grant campus. It's such a beautiful campus, and one of the reasons why we love it so much is it feels so open and so bright and so green, but we do want to make sure that we are keeping students safe. And, and, I, and I don't necessarily mean keeping, trying to keep people out and, you know, put really high fences and, we're, you know, we're not trying to, um, we're not trying to take away from that beautiful, welcoming campus, the physical piece of that, but we do also want to make sure children know to stay in, in certain areas. And so, that was uh, an exciting advancement to find out of on Monday is that there's action around uh, rebuilding some of the, the fencing along uh, parts of the school. Um, there also just started a safety committee at Grant Elementary School that has some incredible people on there down to being able to purchase walkie-talkies, like really nice ones so that the communication is really clear around campus and it's easy to communicate with one another. And I do think fundamentally a piece of the safety component is the social-emotional well-being of your entire student population, parent population, and staff. And that's something uh, that we're also working diligently on. We had teachers that just attended a social-emotional curriculum um, training, and the rest of the staff has been trained on that. And, um, and yeah, so the social-emotional piece, the physical component of making sure your campus is safe, and also making sure that your staff is really fluent and well-versed on procedures. So, you know, as scary, as scary as the first time someone ever had to do an earthquake drill or a fire drill, it's really important to know exactly what to do 
in a situation that is not safe, and this is no different. So we're going to continue the district's practices on drills and make sure that down to, you know, a kindergartner all the way to a sixth grader to our, you know, teachers to every single person on campus is aligned in um, emotional safety, physical safety, mental safety, every in every way that you can be safe. We're committed to that. Yeah, I think um, I was just uh, thinking about when I was in school, and in those days, it was the fear of a nuclear bomb. And we had duck and cover uh, exercises. Uh, we had to go out in the hallways, close all the windows in the classroom, and duck and cover uh, in front of the lockers in the hallways. I remember all that. So there was always this kind of some safety issues around in our world. I read the other day that there are teachers groups forming uh, across the country in different places uh, wanting the, whose particular platform is to arm the teachers. Uh, do you have any brief thoughts on that one? Oh, that is never going to be a solution that I'm committed to. Yeah. I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to imagine that that would be, that we, our country would have to get to that point where mm -hmm. that, was, uh, that was necessary. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult thing. So how, how much, um, the teachers that are now working in the school, how much continuing education do they have to do? Or are there requirements for continuing education? And what's that look like for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So as a, a public educator, uh, at least in California, you get your teaching credential, and it's considered a preliminary credential until you begin teaching. And then there's a two-year induction program where you are paired with a mentor and do sort of coursework, but it's now sort of in the form of reflection and working to better your practice. And then after those two years, your credential is cleared and you are, you know, you, that, that credential is now, it's, it's not temporary or preliminary. I can't think of the correct word, but it's a cleared credential. Um, now, beyond that, there's tons of courses you can take that would actually increase your position slightly on the pay scale. And all of that information is public. If you're as a public educator, you can look up different districts, pay scales, and see the amount of years a teacher has been employed at the district. And then the other, the other piece of the grid would be how many units on top of their teaching credential that they have earned. And those units cost money. And through different institutions, whether it's online or a local university, you can... Uh, take different classes, whether it's, re you know, uh, reading specialty, uh, curriculum planning, uh, new science units, and those that you would then continue up on the pay scale. Um, it's very small increments, just to be fair. Um, uh, and so that's encouraged. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a teacher who, who hasn't, hasn't sought out that kind of education and, and furthering themselves in that way. Now, I happen to know I have a couple of teachers who are currently earning their master's degree. So that's something that lots of educators pursue. Um, you'll find that teachers are some of the best learners. So it's something that happens really naturally in common in teaching, teaching populations as far as the people that I know um, and wanting to learn more and build their craft. Oh, best learners are also the best teachers. I in agree. Many ways. The yeah. Best teachers of any way. What do you like to learn? Oh man, I love to learn. I really, I have a strong interest in language. So uh -huh. I'm back on the Spanish train, 
It's been a while. Um, I I love improv class. I like to go to improv class and teach improv class. Um, so that's something that's a really fun thing for me. Theater. Um, I love to sit in lectures. I love to learn about art. I love to discuss film. What else? Well, yeah, it's, it's a constant process, yeah. and we learn every day, of course, in, yeah. in our in our lives. Uh, we do. So the, the curriculum in uh, Petaluma Public Schools is dictated through the district. Is that how That's it correct. works? Yeah. And it's, it's a set. And what happens between the dictate of the curriculum from the school district and what the teacher does in the classroom? Where mm-hmm. uh, is it always? Uh, oh, I have to do this, even though the teacher. From the teacher's point of view, oh, this is really, I can't do it quite that way. What's, what's it like for, for the curriculum point of view? Well, as a, um, a new principal in the district, I'm still sort of learning exactly what it's like in the Petaluma right. City Schools. But typically, uh, a program is piloted by some teachers and then voted upon to see if, you know, how did that go in the classroom? And those teachers communicate to the rest of the staff what it's like, sort of share the materials, dialogue happens. Um, a decision is made. Uh, in this case, these new curriculums are coming out to be aligned with a common core, which is different. We've all had older curriculum that fit a different a different set of standards. So we all need to sort of you know reassess and see what's out there. What are the what are the curriculum companies putting out, and what's going to work best for a school that you know attends to five-year-olds all the way up, you know, to 11 or 12-year-olds. So it's a, it's a, it's a big decision, but uh, one size doesn't fit all. And um, when a teacher, I'll speak from the teacher perspective, um, and it really depends on the campus as well, but the materials are adopted. Each teacher receives their set of materials, and they go through it, usually with their grade-level team, and discuss how that's going to fit in to their, to their classroom. So... Do they have to use every single component of a language arts program, for example? Maybe not. I know that the uh, curriculum that we just adopted is more considered a buffet and that you need to choose exactly what's right for your classroom, and it, it's, not a set, it's not a set menu. So um, I think that's a, a nice approach for our teachers to take and, and a little bit more digestible, to keep on the food metaphor, um, because... You can kind of say, okay, I don't have to try and do all of this. I can do what I think is going to serve my students best and also incorporate some of the, the projects and the learning that I'm committed to doing that existed way before this curriculum came into play. Yeah, I know that uh, it seems to me that curriculum is, is kind of evolutionary. It's always changing. There's always something new, something creative. Uh, I have volunteered in the classrooms at times uh, in the school, and uh, the vocabulary used to describe, let's say, some math functions is different than I learned, even though it's the same function, but they're using different words and different ways to get there. I had this experimental thing about sets and subsets in math, and for the life of me right now, I can't remember what I was supposed to learn out of that, but I, I know that there's constant changes in curriculum uh, testing of different methodologies to try to make sure that our students are doing their the best that they can possibly do with the tools that they're given in the curriculum. So that's right, and also the the practices by which or the the methods by which we go about teaching have also shifted, and that's really kind of what Common Core is. Is the co- we're not trying to we haven't changed 
what people are learning so much is how we're teaching them and to, you know, to support the growth of students who are going out into a world of, you know, technology where communication is highly valued, where collaborating is a really important skill. And so uh, our teaching practices, I would say, um, have shifted the most and in a really exciting way. It's a really, really, really great time to be a young person in school. For the children and for the teachers, too. I think so. Yeah, for the yeah. teachers, too. So it's going to be different for you sitting in an office and walking around the campus uh, rather than being in the classroom. Do you anticipate anything about that? that you know, I try and picture what it will be like. Uh -huh. um, you never really know until you start, I right. guess. Uh, I am excited to be able to be in lots of different classrooms instead of just my own. I've always really wanted to be able to get into my colleagues' classrooms and see what's going on. So I am excited to be able to be a part of many different classroom cultures instead of just one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's really a, a good time for you to be coming in. And um, what would you like to envision your place looking like in a year? Oh, my what place, my grant? Yeah, mm -hmm. your grant. What's your place there? What's that going to look like for you? I, uh, what I want for grant is a community that feels that everyone is included and valued and uh, loved. And um, I want a safe campus where experiential learning and growth and student-centered uh, teaching practices are present and uh, a community that is vibrant and well. Well, that sounds like a, a great, great <laughs> set of goals for that. And uh, let's see, school starts on August 16th, I believe it is. Probably, I should probably. Yes, yeah, yeah look at the calendar. I'll yes. be at the office all summer. You'll be there all yeah. summer. So yeah. you'll, whenever when the, they show when up. When the kids show up someday, yeah. you'll know school has started. Exactly. That's, that's very good. Well, we wa I want to thank you very much for being here with us today. And uh, welcome to Petaluma, and I hope that your your tenure at Grant Elementary School will be meaningful to you and to the community that you're serving. So thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for being here. Thank you. Yes, so we are listening to Talking to Rabbi Ted here at KPCA LP 103.3 FM and streaming live at kpca.fm. In our second segment today, we're going to welcome Skip Summer who is uh, a history buff, the history of Petaluma, a retired real estate uh, person here in town, and we'll have a little bit of an opportunity to talk about uh, the history of our community and the effects that it has had on our current day life. So that's what we'll be doing during our second segment today on Talking with Rabbi Ted. Thank you very much.
Welcome back to Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of B'nai Israel Jewish Center in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. You're listening to our program on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm, streaming live. Uh, before we welcome our second guest, I just wanted to mention that the Petaluma Community Relations Council had on June 12th a session, a forum on the issue of disaster preparedness, especially in the aftermath of last fall's uh, fires. And we were privileged to have our police chief and assistant fire chief with us. And we are expressing our concern that our population here is not yet prepared for another disaster, which uh, it's not a question of if, it's always a question of when it happens in our community. So the Community Relations Council and our police and fire departments and other agencies here in town are going to be working together to try to reach out to our neighborhoods and to encourage people to participate in programs that will help them prepare for the future. Stay tuned for more information on that. And I want to welcome Skip Summer to our studio today. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ted. And um, Skip and I met, uh, I lost track of years, a number of years ago. When ten, I, was, I think. About 10 years ago when I was serving on the board of the uh, Petaluma uh, Historical Museum. And um, we've been seeing each other occasionally over the years, and I thought it would be great to have him uh, come into the studio. And his knowledge of the history of Petaluma is always fascinating. And it's really important. I, I believe history is important because if we, are, if we feel we are part of something, our lives are richer because of that. And I believe that's why you got into this, too. How did you get up here, by the way? Up to Petaluma? Petaluma, yeah. Well, uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's an uh, interesting story, actually. I, I was a developer in Larkspur. Uh, I developed a Lark Creek shopping center, and that included a Lark Creek Inn, and then I wore myself out doing that, and um, I sold it, and I got a call from the chairman of the board of Bank of Marin. I'd never met him before. I thought I'd missed a payment, <laughs> and, and uh, it was Bill Murray, and uh, Bill Murray apparently was uh, grew up as a good friend of then Mayor Helen Putnam of Petaluma, and so Bill and Helen brought me up here and said, we've got a deal for you, and they showed me that great old building, the oldest standing building in Petaluma, now the great Petaluma Mill, and uh, it was at that time owned by Petaluman uh, Dolph Hill a great old founding fa family of Petaluma. That's how I got here. That's how you got here. You yeah. developed that mill, and it's still there doing its thing. It is the indeed. building is still doing its thing. It had been closed for uh, several decades, and uh, Helen Putnam's dream was to restore historic downtown Petaluma, and I just got dragged into it, and I'm very happy. I couldn't be happier than I was. And so what attracted you to the history? How did you... Where did you develop this uh, feeling of wanting to know history? Well, I was brought up in uh, Mackinac Island, Michigan, which is a state park, and uh, the, the fort there is, uh, was built by the British in 1780. So that really got me going. And my first job as a kid, as a 14-year-old, was 
driving horse and buggy on Mackinac as a tour guide. From then on, it was uh, I was just engrossed. And so my minor in college at Michigan State was history, major in business. So what do you do? You're writing now. You're, you write a column for the Argus, I believe. And I see your work in the Petaluma Museum's uh, bulletin that comes out, their newsletter. Yes. I, um, I've been writing for the newsletter for the 10 years that uh, you and I have known each other. And uh, then I was writing for the uh, Petaluma Post for uh, about 28 years and the last two and a half years for the Argus. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm eventually going to put it into a book. You, oh, really? Oh. Yeah. When might we expect this book? Oh, <laughs> maybe a year or two away. Okay, yeah. okay. That would be fascinating. So, I guess it would be nice to hear some vignettes. What, what's, what are some of the most salient pieces of the history of our community that really stick with you and inspire you about, about Petaluma? Well, uh, <laughs> interesting question. Uh, the big six founders of Petaluma, uh, McNear, uh, Wickersham, Hill, Fairbanks, uh, Meacham, and Denman were all in really interesting personalities. Some of them came through the gold rush and uh, brought their gold to Petaluma. In the case of John McNear, uh, his father ran a small, he, he was a, a sea captain in Maine, and his father-in-law ran a small hotel in Petaluma and said, come on out here. We got this little creek growing through town, and it needs boats. And so John McNear came out, and he was he, certainly the biggest name in Petaluma's history. And uh, he did not come through the, the gold rush. Uh, Harrison Meacham, uh, Meacham Road out there uh, off of Stony Point, uh, was a teenager who joined the gold rush, and he struck it big. And uh, this is a fascinating story. He struck it big as a 19-year-old as and uh, spent his gold on longhorn cattle, which he bought uh, in the foothills of the Sierras, and drove the herd of cattle through Petaluma, <laughs> longhorns, which were very angry, neat, mean cattle, and, uh, and eventually ended up on a ranch uh, that he purchased from Vallejo. Oh, and he never went anywhere without carrying a sidearm. Probably. <laughs> in case the Longhorn turned against him, I, right? I don't know what, what yeah. it was. He, he ran into a lot of trouble in the, in the, a lot of um, uh, trouble in the gold rush. And so he never uh, wanted to go anywhere without carrying a sidearm. And he often had outriders with him, which kind of was uh, out, outlandish for, for Petaluma at the time. You know, we didn't have that much crime. Yeah, you told me a story about the house that was moved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, w want to tell me that? Want to tell sure. our listeners that story? Sure. Well, uh, Helen Putnam uh, had moved from uh, Mayor of Petaluma to become supervisor, uh, the, the seat currently home, held by David Rabbit. And uh, one day she called me and said, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> and uh -oh. I, said, I said, yeah, it was like that. And I said, uh, well, tell me. And she said, well, we're welcoming um, Wendy's Hamburgers to town, and they've purchased a lot on Washington and Wilson. And uh, on that lot is the house of one of our first mayors, uh, William Farrell. And she said, I want the house saved, and I want you to move it. And I said, well, Helen, I've never moved a house before. And she said, well, I've got that all set up. We have a great moving company in Pangrove, the Wacker Company. 
And uh, and she said, and I said, well, where am I going to move it to? And she said, well, I've got that all set up too. Uh, I have a lot uh, that you can buy for thirty thousand dollars. And so I'm thinking this is going to be pretty pricey. I said, Helen, uh, what's this all going to cost? Do you know? She said, well, you're buying the house for a dollar. And all of a sudden, it was not pricey. <laughs> and uh, an interesting sidelight of, of that, Ted, is that uh, I had to walk uh, Earl Wacker, uh, the mover, through the ho- empty house to see if it was sturdy enough to move. And we, and it was completely empty. And we got up into the attic, and I, I found tucked under some boards in the attic was a little package about a foot long and about. Uh, um, three inches up and and across, and uh, I took that out. I'd already bought the house for a dollar, right? So it was right. mine. <laughs> and uh, so I got home and opened it up, and among the things in it were the. Uh, I might back up a second and tell you that uh, William Farrell married uh, John Burns' his wife, and John Burns was a grocer. His store was where you and I had coffee at. Uh, Starbucks uh-huh. on, on Wilson and, and Washington. And uh, so he and his wife were going to build this beautiful house in 1900. And unfortunately, Mr. Burns died before that. But his wife went on to construct the house. So in this package in the attic, I found uh, a copy of the uh, instructions for his grave, it, uh, the receipt for his grave clothes and for his <laughs> casket. And uh, and I found the original contract with Brainerd Jones uh, for building the house on the corner of Wilson and Washington, and uh, and I found a an original grant deed. This is all for the Burns family, not for right. the Farrell family. Found this original grant deed for 40 acres in the Petaluma Mountains, signed by Ulysses S. Grant, President of the United States. Wow. Oh, that hangs on my wall right now. Right. Isn't that so, interesting? That is interesting. There's uh, such a history here. I, I know I think I mentioned to you in our discussion that uh, our synagogue, I have uh, a book of the original minutes from 1864, handwritten minutes uh, from the board of directors. And every time I say that, I say a follow-up line, which is the agenda was the same as next week's board meeting because... We're always dealing with similar kinds of issues through life, but it's amazing, just amazing to me to be connected back over those years, 154 years, back to 1864 when that was written. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'd be happy to show it to you. But all these stories are just, they make for a rich community for us to be living in. So that house that you moved, where where is it now? It's on the Turning Basin. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called, it's uh, the Farrell House. We we uh, put that moniker on it. Uh-huh. Uh, Helen wanted to do that, and um, at first I opened a restaurant there, and uh, that didn't fly very well. And then I sold it to a Girl and a Fig Restaurant, and that didn't fly very well. <laughs> and, and so um, it is now an office building. Very it's a river house. Yeah, a river house. Right, right. I told you that my story about the river house, which was people got the notion that it was haunted, <laughs> that it was haunted, and that uh, they discovered that the it was being haunted by this very um, straight-line Methodist who didn't like the fact that there was drinking uh, <laughs> in, in the building and wanted um, to make sure it was in good hands. And 
once it became this office building and there were people in there helping each other and taking care of whatever therapists and mortgages and all kinds of offices that are in there now, that that was a good thing. That was a good thing. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I have. I, you're the only one who's told me that story. I'd love to know where you got it. Uh, yeah, I'll have to trace that back too myself. But <laughs> it's amazing how these stories uh, start. Indeed. It's amazing how these stories start. So is there any sense of uh, when you look at the history of Petaluma, could you pull out any values that people that are founding fathers of this community and our ancestors, aside from business deals and land exchanges and building this and building that, you know, what what were they hoping for in terms of community? Did, did you see any of that in what you... Well, sure. Well, sure. Um, coincidentally, I, I, I just uh, this morning submitted my uh, next article to the Argus, which would be in next Thursday. And um, it's about 1858, the founding of when Petaluma became a city. We had to apply to the state of uh, legislature to get a uh, to be declared a city and be able to to uh, impose taxes, because at the time we we had nothing. We had a crummy schoolhouse. We had no police force, no firemen, and uh, so we became a, a city officially in '58. And uh, interestingly, before we became a city, we had five churches in, in town. Mm. So the, the religious uh, aspect was strong among these early founders. And uh, many of them intermarried with each other. The Hills married into the Fairbanks family and the McNears and the, and the Denmans intermarried. And uh, some of them even had their separate banks. <laughs> You know, Denman had a bank across the street from Wickersham's bank, uh -huh. and um, they were all, to, to answer your question, they were all very straight, narrow people, um, and they wanted to do the best they could for their families and for the community. Yes. So you had you had a story about uh, Jack London and the Jewish community? Yes. Would you mind sharing that? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, Jack London, in the first... 20 years of the 20th century, uh, was America's number one novelist. And uh, he also was a declared uh, socialist, and he wasn't bashful about telling everybody that he was. So because of that, he was also the best-read American novelist in the country of Russia at the time. And Russia then was going through what they called the pogroms, uh, kicking Jewish families out of Russia, and, uh, and many of these families had read Jack London's description of Sonoma County as being the most wonderful place in the entire world to farm. And so they hopped a, bo a boat to Ellis Island. They took the Transcontinental Railway over here and, uh, and got another boat from San Francisco to Sausalito and came up to Sonoma County. And by 1920, Sonoma, southern Sonoma County had the largest community of Jewish farmers in the entire United States. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's interesting. Because, of course, and the history that we know about our Jewish community starts, you know, we don't have a lot of details back into the 1800s, uh, but starts in the early 1900s with this immigration, uh, ultimately buying chicken ranches and uh, yeah. getting into the poultry industry here in town. 
And the descendants of those families are now the leaders of this community. The, yes. The yes. doctors and dentists and lawyers. Uh, right. Uh, and, uh, and shopkeepers. It was really a, a wonderful move, and it based our community very solidly. Uh, I, I've, I've been astounded at that, Jacqueline. <laughs> yeah, I am too. And uh, now we have to pay homage to Jack Linden for uh, helping to found our modern uh, Jewish community here in Petaluma that the roots go back to him. That's an amazing That's an amazing story that I was not aware of. I'm going to have to check with Ken Kahn. Ken Kahn wrote a book called Comrades and Chicken Ranchers. I know that book. Which is the uh, little history of the Jewish community here in Petaluma. That's and um, I'm sure he either knows that or would be fascinated to... Uh, reiterate that connection in some ways between Jack London and the Jewish community here in Absolutely. Yes, yes. So, um, when you are writing these things about history, are do you see these people as part of your life in some way? As well, being a resident? How do you, how do you, what's that like inside of you when you're writing these things? Well, I love the backstories, uh -huh. the little uh, vignettes about uh, people and and uh, their side uh, s side issues, and uh, I pick up on those and elaborate on them. I uh, they all had uh, interesting little sidelights. Uh, John McNear was a uh, was a booming industrialist who just always wanted his own way and rarely didn't get his own way. And his son, George P. McNear, George Plummer McNear, uh, took over from his father when he was just 19 years old. Mm. And uh, that, that was still going in this uh, community. When I, uh, the, at one time, the McNear Mill, which I bought, as you mentioned, uh, uh, was owned by Wickersham, one of the big founders, McNear, the Hill family. I bought it from the Hill family. Uh, and uh, the Wickershams, Hills, McNears, Meachams, Denmans, and uh, I'm leaving one out here, Fairbanks. Those are the big six founders of this community. They all intermarried. There's a great story right there. There is a story, and of course those families are all still part of our community. They are. Many of them in many ways. Sure. Yeah, I know that the museum tries to keep alive the story of Petaluma through the various exhibits. And you worked up on the second floor at the Petaluma Museum? Yes. What, uh, what happened up there? The mezzanine uh, of the museum, mezzanine, right. uh, which is on the corner of uh, B and, and uh, Kentucky, is where the permanent exhibits are. Uh, the, the downstairs, the main floor, uh, has changing exhibits continually. But the permanent exhibits are about the history of our town. And... Um, we cover uh, the architecture of this community, which is amazing architecture. Uh, we we cover the schools and the a typical Victorian kitchen, the early ranchers and settlers, one of whom was Meacham, Harrison Meacham, and uh, of course the chicken industry. And we have quite a big display on the on the poultry industry there, and um, and we go back to uh, the Miwoks and the Pomo tribes. Uh, the river and how that was really, it was all about the river. People came here because, and, and you might know that, uh, you know, when they first came here, that was just a tidal slough, very muddied up and shallow. And, uh, and then we also covered 
uh, certain families, such as the McNears. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, was, it's a really wonderful thing. If, if anyone, any of your listeners have not been to the Petaluma Museum, they should go take a look. They right? should take a look at that. It really it gives them a sense of what this community came from and uh, etc. It's really a uh, important uh, history is, you know, history is important for people. Yeah. So people often forget about history, and I won't go into the famous quotations about, you know, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it, and all <laughs> that. And, uh, but it's, it's it's so true in many ways. But yeah. I think there's an innate piece in human beings of wanting to know our past, <clears throat> and if we're part of a community, the community is part of our past. It's it's part of us. You know, many people now are checking their DNA and they want to know the connections, the biological connections. Yeah. But I think on top of those biological connections are these historical connections of the community. And one of the hard parts about the evolving uh, communities, uh, suburbs of San Francisco is populations come in and people are now commuting to San Francisco and other places or working locally, but they came from elsewhere And it takes a long time for them to integrate into a community. And I believe that one of the ways that they can find attachment with our community is to learn more about the history and the experience of the generations before that made this place uh, something special. I totally totally concur. Uh, We are are based upon our history. Our history is what we are now and what we will become in the future. Right, right. And uh, that's all so important these days. Yeah. Uh, I heard a disturbing radio uh, thing this morning that to live in San Mateo County, one had to be making $300,000 a year in order to buy a house there. Oh, Can wow. you believe that? No, that? So think about the school teachers. And right, the, right. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, in the segment before you came on was Amanda Gray, the new principal at Grant Elementary, and we oh. were talking about teachers' salaries and how hard it, uh, the struggle is to be able to, for the community to support the teachers given the costs of living and yeah. all the other pieces that fit into a complicated uh, modern era here in California, particularly with how expensive it is. Yeah, and um, as a... Um, uh, career uh, realtor. Uh, I retired four years ago from that. Uh, I, I watch real estate values. And uh, so that San Mateo County thing is not happening here yet. It's not, we've not gotten that far, thank God. And, uh, but uh, the real estate values in Sonoma County and, and farther away are pretty much dependent upon how close we are to San Francisco because it is still a commuter's uh, community here, pretty much. And so as you get closer, the real estate values get higher and higher and higher. Uh, with a few exceptions, Healdsburg is an exception, for instance. So that's pretty yeah. expensive. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going to turn that around, of course. And we have the housing crisis as a result of the uh, fires last year. Oh, boy. And uh, that has helped to increase the costs uh, for people here, our workers here in town are having a hard time finding places to live that they can afford based on wages. Yeah. So it's complicated. And I'm sure back in the history of this community, there have been many ups and downs uh, through the history economically, starting with our national economy, world economy, but the trickle-down effect 
uh, into the local world here in Petaluma. I'm sure, sure that's been complicated. Yeah, I'll tell you uh, one uh, real estate story from uh, 1892. Um, John McNear uh, went to San Francisco because he had heard that the Carlson Courier silk mill had burned down there and uh, and he wanted to bring them to Petaluma. So he took his carriage down to Sausalito and the boat across and he went to Carlson Courier and he said, if you come to Petaluma, I can give you a piece of land, I can sell you a piece of land for one-third the cost of what you'd buy here. I can guarantee you on a railroad spur. I can guarantee you a bank loan. I can uh, guarantee you a uh, employee ratio that you wouldn't believe. That, that, by the way, Silk Mill employed all women at the time because their hands were smaller, mm-hmm. and that was important for working the machines. And they came up here, and sure enough, that's how we got Carlson Courier, which later became Sunset Line and Twine, and now is becoming a hotel. A hotel, which should be opening soon, I believe. Nice. I think it should be opening. opening. Yes, yes. Yeah, these are, uh, and we had this little town just south of here uh, from you, that you told me, six miles south of Petaluma, that was moved eventually, packed up the whole town yes. and moved it away. That's, yes. Yeah, so we have a little bit of time to tell that story. Okay. Uh, it was eight miles south of Petaluma. Eight miles. And oh, it was called Donahue Landing. And that's another John McNear story. Uh-huh. Because we, Petaluma at that time, uh, in the uh, 1870s, 1880s, really wanted to have a railroad depot and a, and a train track going near our town. They wanted it to be right where it is now. The city fathers and the, and uh-huh. the important, important man of that was John McNear. And so... Uh, he, various people tried to build a railroad here. I don't want to say various. There must have been six or seven attempts. And finally, a man named Peter Donahue, who was the kind of Donald Trump of San Francisco at the time, came and he built Donahue's Landing. And uh, that became the sideline. We didn't get the people we wanted until 1914. Wow. Yeah. And he came and moved that entire town South, right? To, to Tiburon. Yeah, to Tiburon. the entire town, including a, a 30-room hotel. That's, that's So moving that one house for you was simple. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today and just telling us more of our history and the little vignettes, but also the passion that you have for the community in which you live and of which you've been a part and how much you've given to our community by helping us make that connection uh, to our past. Thank you so that much. That really sir. makes a bit, Thank you so much for being with us in the studio today. So you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCA-LP 103.3 FM online at kpca.fm. We'll see you next time. Thank you. PCA LP, Petaluma, California. Hello, my name is Philip Lehman Brown, and I host Let's Make a List. Each week, I pick a topic relating to music, movies, video games, and basically anything pop culture. I make a list and go through each of my choices, being as nostalgic as possible. 
Usually I have a guest or two with me, but the show is at its best when the listeners call in, share their opinions, and tell their own stories. Please tune in to Let's Make a List every Friday at 2 p.m. on KPCA 103.3 FM. Thank you for listening to KPCA, Petaluma's Free Range Radio. KPCA is a community radio station that highlights the creativity of individuals. Let your voice be heard and become a programmer. If you have something to say and want to get involved, visit us at kpca.fm or call 707-773-3190. This is DJ Saeed, host of Full Circle Sessions. Every Friday afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m., my show presents incredible dance music from across the decades. Join me for two hours of musical journey, featuring the best in eclectic dance music. Get your weekend started here at 103.3 KPCA. I heard there was a new radio station in town. Oh, oh, you mean Free Range Radio KPCA at 103.3 FM? Yeah, that's right. How did you know about that? Well, I just looked where all good information comes from, Facebook. Just follow the Free Range Radio KPCA page and join the discussion. Just keep it polite. Facebook? Yeah. Our on-air personalities will post updates and information on their shows, as well as events and news concerning the station. KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. (laughs) 